You're listening to the Science Circle Podcast. It's a nonprofit program serving a global alliance of scientists, science students, science educators, and you. Welcome. And our guest today on the Science Circle Podcast is Dr. Stephen Gazier. He is a scientist with a doctorate and a research background in molecular genetics and cell biology. Uh, he's currently working to develop genome and editing technologies in corn at Dow DuPont. He taught biology at the University of New Orleans and at Ball State University. Stephen then developed educational activities in virtual reality platform Second Life and Open Simulator. He has also developed an honors biology course on the history and philosophy of biological science, and he is a frequent presenter at Science Circle gatherings. I could talk more about his areas of specialty, but frankly, I'm not sure I can pronounce all the words, so we're going to bring Stephen right in and get his help with this. Stephen, so glad you could join us for this early episode in the Science Circle podcast series. You have such an interesting background. You're postdoctoral research at the University of Chicago and Tulane Cancer Center. You uh, investigated DNA repair mechanisms in B cell development and then mobile element retrotransposition. I've been practicing all those words. I have no idea what I just said, but, but maybe you can help put all this into uh, everyday terms. What, what is it that you're doing? Well, one of the general themes behind the biological research I've done has been really understanding the integrity of DNA and sometimes the important times it gets mutagenized and gets changed in a way to get some sort of you know new protein product or other phenotypic changes for the cell. DNA repair has been around for as long as there's been DNA. It's an important mechanism for organisms to you know maintain uh, their cell state but it's also important for passing it on to that next generation. So when we think about DNA and evolution, that's, you know, that's the blueprint. Not only does it have to help you organize and structure yourself as an organism, but it's also what you pass on to that next generation. So much data packed in one of those little uh, DNA bits, isn't there? Yes, it is. It's an amazing uh, coding activity. And uh, to kind of come back to one of the words you're mentioning there, the retrotransposition, what's also an interesting part and what's, very dynamic about eukaryotic genomes is that they have these elements that move around in them. They either jump from one spot to another or they'll replicate themselves and actually go through the reverse central dogma of molecular biology. They'll actually go from RNA and turn themselves back into DNA and integrate into new places. And these are things that, you know, the way they affect genomes uh, over time and within individuals is, is a fascinating topic. And that's a topic I'm sure you speak quite a bit, trying to make it understandable in layman's terms. And isn't that the challenge of teaching and presenting in platforms like this is to take something as complex, and it probably doesn't get any more complex than the kind of work that you're doing, and being able to explain it without dumbing it down or missing what's really uh, important, the important takeaways. So how do you do that, both as a presenter and just as a human passing through life, trying to explain to people? what it is that you do. Well, it, it does come down to really thinking about the essential elements of what the end result is that you're trying to tell someone. And so, you know, you don't have to necessarily understand and convey all of the sequence and structure of DNA to tell people, yes, it's the important blueprint that passes on 
uh, information is the next generation and also is what's helping design and code and build all the stuff that your cells are made out of. So I think a lot of it does come down to saying, you know, what is the essential point you're trying to make and to put that as a, like, what is the purpose? And that's something, you know, you can put in words anybody can understand. The other thing really is to be very conscientious about the jargon words. And the the tricky part there is sometimes you don't even know when a word is jargon to somebody in your audience. So a lot of times it's, I think there are two things. One, you just try and be very conscientious about using words that are common in everyone, you know, everyday usage words. Uh, but the other one is just to make sure you're open to letting somebody pause the conversation and ask a question to get clarification on something. This is something you have had quite a bit of experience with. I take a look at the uh, list of presentations you've made here just to Science Circle gatherings. And uh, when you present to Science Circle, it's a global alliance of uh, science educators and students. So they're coming with a little bit of a background. But still, when I look at some of these topics here, let's see, contributions to uh, cryobiology, that's freezing people, right? freezing any sort of biological cellular matter. So for the, the example of Stanley Lebo's work, he actually helped design ways to freeze mouse embryos. So it wasn't necessarily a whole person. But the technology has also been used for freezing sperm. So any sort of thing that relates to cryobiology. And I think when you think about a word like cryobiology, that's something people are familiar with. And then you might remind them that there was this whole controversy about Matt Williams' uh, son wanting to have his body frozen at a cryo. Uh, genics lab. Well, let's look at some of the other topics. How about updating Darwinian evolution? Is is something happened? I mean, it always depends on where your starting point is. And one of the themes you'll see in a lot of my presentations where I'm advocating for rational thought and evaluating science and biology, you know, properly, is I really have a distinct hatred of (laughs) the Discovery Institute, which is also the center of science and biology. And they are a group that is really pushing intelligent design. And so one of the things that they will do when they try and convince the public that biology and evolution is just a false narrative is they will actually try and go all the way back and try and critique the original Darwinian on the origin of species in order to say that biology is not right. And a part of some of the, the talks that I've given have been understanding this process of science where, yes, there is going to be a proposal, a thesis for how things work, and then people challenge that thesis, do experiments, and usually evolve the understanding of any sort of topic like evolution. And that it's always important to be really up to date on what the current biology is. I will say that every year there are more and more contributions to our current understanding of, of evolution by thousands of researchers and thousands of papers every year that help us learn sometimes just small little things that are new about evolution, sometimes big things about evolution. And this is just the scientific method at play, right? It's a never-ending iterative process. <laughs> Ten yes, years from now, you'll be updating, uh, no doubt, Darwinian evolution once again. Let me just t- touch on that particular uh, talk. What I did was, in that one, I structured around and kind of reiterated a lot from a documentary put out by Nova called What Darwin Never Knew. And a lot of the the topics in What Darwin Never Knew were based on some books by Sean Carroll, uh, things like Remarkable Creatures, and you know other research that, that 2009 were some really big steps and some new things going on, also by uh, Rubin, who um, 
discovered the first discovered tectodal, which is this first four-legged organism very far back in the fossil record. And so, sorry, Neil Shubin. Neil Shubin was his name. These are things that really help us understand very big things about evolution that Darwin didn't have the possibility to understand. So it's evolving our understanding of evolution because of the new technologies and new things we've learned over time. And that's a great documentary. So what Darwin never knew, I think it's still very watchable, even though it's now about 10 years old, which is, you know, a lifetime in biology. Well, they'd spend a lot more time on that if they did a video on what I never knew. We're going to talk more about what you know, which is considerable right after the break. We'll be right back. And we're speaking with Dr. Stephen Gazier. He's a molecular biologist, a cell biologist, and someone who knows a lot about corn <laughs> with his current work in genome editing technologies for Dow DuPont. How did you wind up working with corn, Stephen? Well, so I was uh, teaching at Ball State, and I really wanted to get back into doing research. I was you know, putting out job applications. Uh, Dow DuPont was getting into the CRISPR field. And uh, from a lot of their early work and a lot of work in the, the wider field of CRISPR engineering, that the ability to actually make the mutations and insert genes into organisms is actually quite difficult. So CRISPR-Cas9 is very good at breaking DNA, but then the natural repair processes in the cell are what put the DNA back together. And a lot of times that does not include, it's very infrequent to actually be able to put the DNA in that you want. So, you know, with my background and expertise in homology recombination, DNA repair mechanisms, uh, from under, trying to understand how, in certain ways, a similar enzyme, the retrotransposase that you have in the line one mobile element from my second postdoc, that, you know, some of that expertise would be very valuable to the company. And so, again, I did have some people I knew at the company, and they passed my name along, and ultimately I was hired by the Molecular Tools Division. You've sure taken a lot of turns, haven't you, in your academic career, doing down different avenues. I saw uh, your earliest science interest was in astrophysics. I, I imagine that's when you were growing up. What, what stimulated that? Yeah, I have to say that, you know, when I was growing up, I loved astrophysics. And I think a lot of it does have to do with Carl Sagan. You know, I, in the early 70s or the mid 70s and late 70s. The, the Cosmos series, right? Cosmos series yeah. was amazing. Yeah. You know, at the time, there were just a lot of amazing things going on in physics in terms of trying to understand. I mean, there was still a controversy back then of really understanding the origin of the universe. Was it something that had always existed or were things like the Big Bang uh the origin of the universe and really trying to understand the black holes. What were black holes? Were they, they were theoretically possible, but were they really true? And then also just during the uh, development of satellites and satellite telescopes. So it was, I think, a really amazing time to be excited about astrobiology and astrophysics. The thing about it, too, though, was that there were large teams working to understand astrophysics. And I really liked the fact that in biology, you can do stuff at the bench and as an individual person, you can be doing experiments and make an impact on the field as compared to always trying to be a person as a part of a team of scientists. And so I thought it also felt more relevant to the human condition in many ways that you can come up with either a new way to understand cancer or understand some sort of new molecular tool that helps people. Do you, uh, do you see anything really promising, really exciting uh, right now on the horizon that uh, you might be able to talk about? We can, we can put DNA of almost any configuration we want into almost any cell we want. 
in almost any organism that we want. Is it something we should be frightened about? Uh, are we on the verge of some Frankensteinian world where we're going to be able to create basically whatever we want? No, I think we always have this larger template of what is the genome of an organism already. And so I don't think in the next 50 years we're going to do much more than really tinker on the edges with what we can do. But I think when you think about the applications of genetic engineering, a lot of times it's what need is driving it. And so when you think about at least in the area of agriculture and the population density of the world and the amount of arable land we have, genetic engineering might ultimately be what's most important for humans who survive on the planet in terms of making enough crops with enough nutrition with a small amount of land and changing climate or a much hotter amount of climate that uh, affects us globally. You know, yeah, maybe you could be a little bit worried about what sort of genetic alterations are happening, but the the need for it is to keep the human race alive. So I think in terms of, you know, it's maybe a little bit far out there in terms of the big scenarios, but that's one way of looking at it. Our guest today for this episode of The Science Circle was Dr. Stephen Gazier, a molecular geneticist, a cell biologist, and a researcher in genome editing technology. Thanks for making that a little more understandable, and we'll be right back. The Science Circle is a nonprofit program based in the Netherlands with a recording studio here in Southern California. For more information on this podcast and other Science Circle programs, please visit sciencecircle.org. That's sciencecircle.org. This podcast is under Creative Commons license and is freely available for educational use. Until the next time, I'm your host, Stephen Van Hook. Be well.